Hi everyone, welcome or welcome back to the United Citizens of Europe podcast. This is Luca and today we will be discussing a topic that might be triggering for some people, so be warned. The topic is rape used as a war weapon and our guest and humanitarian law specialist is Loredana Speranza. Hi Loredana, how are you doing? Hi, hello everyone, thanks for having me. Um, pretty fine, thank you, and you? I'm doing great, I'm doing great. It's a good day here in Madrid, so I'm doing great. Let's start the interview by talking a bit about yourself. So who are you? Where are you from? Uh, what are your hobbies? Just let's talk about, about yourself. Okay, so I'm Italian. Uh, I came from a small town at the bottom of uh, the Vesuvio, near Pompeii. But uh, for study and work reasons, I don't live there since a while now. Um, about, I don't know, I can talk to you a little bit about my hobby. I will be banal, probably. But uh, I love to explore new places, uh, travel, but, you know, recently it's kind of hard. And read mostly fantasy or historical or feminist novels. And when I'm not too lazy, <laughs> I also like to go hiking in the nature. Not lately. Lately, I'm pretty lazy. <laughs> well, lately it's also getting colder, um, so I guess it's kind of hard to hike. Yeah, I'm like a bear. <laughs> I need to stay home in the winter. <laughs> So you recently graduated and today we're going to discuss some bits and pieces of your thesis. Um, do you mind talking a bit about your academic path? Uh, not at all. Well, about my bachelor, I graduated in political science and international relations at the University of uh, Naples, L'Orientale. Uh, the theme of my research was migration and development cooperation under the Italian law. The inspiration came one day when I was took part as an observer to the training course for Migration and Co-Development Association. Uh, it was promoted by the IOM and the association supports the initiative of migrants in Italy uh, aimed to boost the socio-economic development in both Italy and uh, in their countries of origin. Uh, following this path, uh, last year I obtained my master's degree in development and international cooperation at University of Siena with a thesis on rape as a weapon of war with a special focus on the Syrian case and the failure of international community that we will discuss today. Um, what else? During my master's year, I had the chance to spend a semester at Université Catholique de Louvain, uh, thanks to the Erasmus program, and to be an intern at the Embassy of Italy in um, Tirana, in Albania. Uh, after my graduation, uh, I spent three months in Corinth for an Erasmus for friendship with uh, Basilica Moon, an NGO that has worked for the last four years in uh, Thessaloniki, in a refugee camp. And now in Corinth, I contribute to the opening of a community center where we provide uh, lessons and activities for refugees and people the, who live in the, in the refugee camp. And right now, I'm in Portugal for work since almost a year now. Yeah, in February will be uh, one year. Can I ask you a bit more about your uh, traineeship? Uh, which one? The one in, uh, in the embassy or the one in the refugee camp? The one in the refugee camp. Okay, it was a really special experience for me. Um, my dream job uh, is always to to work in uh, this kind of environment. You know, uh, refugee a support of a refugee camp. So for me, the experience in the refugee camp it was a special one. I did mostly because I wanted to see if I was able to work in this kind of environment, because it's not easy. 
I know that uh, it seems that we just provide lessons or activity, but you spent a lot of times with people that are facing that faced and are facing something that is terrible. So you listen story, uh, you see the condition, uh, the living condition in the camp, and it's hard. So I wanted to prove myself that uh, I was able to do this job. And it was really special experience. I met a lot of amazing people that was just really unlucky on about the place where they they born, you know. And um, it was really nice. I I taught uh, English to the kids, uh, IT classes to adults, and we exchange uh, memories, uh, recipes, story. It, it was something amazing. And the work of this NGO, Vasilika Moon, is really special. Now they also open a free shop where they um, give pasta, uh, tampons, uh, I don't know, biberons, milk, and all the stuff that people in the refugee camp right now don't have. Okay, let's go back to your academic path um, and um, let's talk about your thesis. So yeah. how was writing your thesis during a pandemic? Did it affect you in, in any way? Was it better because, you know, you didn't have any distractions or was it worse because you couldn't distract yourself? Okay, fortunately, I was already in a revision phase, but uh, to be honest, even if most of the work was done, it was really hard to focus and just sit there and write. Um, the topic chosen is not simple, and my work consistently, most of the time, uh, reading testimonies, testimonies of atrocity. Yeah. And to be honest, in many moments, I would have needed to unplug and distract myself. But, you know, with the lockdown, it was not possible. There were weeks where, um, when I couldn't even look at my notes. Uh, in addition, there was still a great concern for everything that was going on. I was lucky because none of my loved ones took uh, the virus in a um, heavy way. And by chance, for a, for a case, uh, when the lockdown starts, I was at my mother's house and not in my really small apartment uh, in Siena. But it was really difficult. I, I, for weeks, I, I think that all March and April, I couldn't look at my notes. You know, I just closed my notes, my laptop in a room in my house and didn't open until the beginning of May. I guess like it can be overwhelming. Yes. Like reading about all these atrocities. Yeah, because the testimonies uh, that I found of the reports from uh, UN and other NGO, uh, they were really specific. Because when it's about rape, when you have to, uh, to treat this kind of subject, you need to be specific. You need to know how the rape was perpetrated, uh, what kind of, uh, uh, if they use object, if they use genitals. Um, it's really important in the, in the, in the court, <laughs> these kind of um, arguments. So it was really, really overwhelmed. And yeah. the fact that you are a woman, it can be also, it's not that a man cannot understand. I'm not saying that, but you know, you can relate it in a different way. You can relate in a different way when you're a woman. Mm -hmm. You wrote your thesis in international humanitarian law. Um, how come? Why did you choose this subject? 
Um, I believe that part of the credit goes to my supervisor as well as the professor who taught the International Humanitari Humanitarian Law course, uh, Paolo Venturi. Uh, it, we can say that in a way I had a kind of love at first sight with the subject. Um, now we will say something that is perhaps a little idealistic, but what fascinated me most about international humanitarian law is that despite it's all, uh, all its flaws and holes, it tries to impose limits and stem the damage of a war. You know, international humanitarian law is realistic. It knows very well that conflict exists. It knows that the conflict it will not cease to exist just because you want that they cease to exist. So therefore sets rules and tries to protect or repay injustice. So it, it's kind of to it's a kind of subject that try to put rules and the limits to the chaos. So I, I kind of admire this kind of subject and the people that work on this subject. No, let's deep dive um, in your actual topic. So uh, which is rape used um, as a war weapon. Why did you choose this um, this topic? Well, uh, one of the reasons uh, is that I know someone that has been tortured by the Syrian government and was uh, lucky to survive and escape. Uh, I hear him and his story uh, a lot of time. And sometimes, uh, you know, he also talked like is um, far from beyond the experience, you know, like um, he, you know, he lived this experience, but he's like now detached from his pain. So when I was listening to him and all this story, I decided that I would talk about Syria in any case. And I decided to focus on the rape mainly because it's a subject that is rarely talk about, talked about. I always thought it was important to take care of what happens outside our garden. You know, we are lucky to have been born in a place where um, there is no conflict, but this is simple luck. And we cannot remain indifferent to certain things, you know, because otherwise never will ever change. You know, we all um, have all heard at least once about the conflict in Syria, the use of chemical weapons in Syria, or the presence of ISIS in Syria, but no one ever ever pays, pays attention to what happens to the women in this territory or in, in general what happened during conflict to women. Uh, Rippa's weapon of war is not something new at all and if it, it can still be used strategically it is because in the world women are still seen as goods and not as a subject of their own right. Um, I say word because uh, here in the West, we often uh, willingly proclaim ourselves as champions of respect and women's rights, almost as we were better than the others. But the truth is far, far from this. And you can see it from like uh, the little things. A banal example, when they say not to hit a woman, they say to you, oh, think if she was your daughter, wife, mother, sister, but you know, I, I am a human being. I have, I'm not, uh, I'm not a daughter, wife, mother, sister. I'm first of all a human being. You have to respect me and not to use me as a belong of a man. You know, this is that why is rape is still used because the women everywhere in the world are still seen as a property of a man, as a belonging, 
belongings. This is something I, I kind of got from, from your thesis. It's also that, um, especially in international conflicts, it's also the belonging of the other ethnicity or the other country. So as you were saying, like rape is used as a, as a war weapon, you know, like by raping um, a woman of another country during an international conflict, it's also can, kind of uh, another factor in support of the fact that they are winning the war because they're taking yeah. away um, something like the honor or something uh, from the other country. Yeah, exactly. Again, because the women are not seen as, as you were saying before, they're not seen as actual human beings, but more of uh, an agent that belongs to a country or a man or, you know, like never as, uh, as um, an individual. Exactly. And in states and in nation where the sense of a community is really strong, women are a projection of that community. Yeah, yeah. So you hurt the women, you hurt the community. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say. I don't know if it was. It was <laughs> no, clear. no, yes, it was really <laughs> clear. <laughs> don't worry. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean that's a, that's the thing. Like the um, yeah, it, it's very sad when you, when you see these kind of things. Um, and I think like it, it, it's very it's very good that you touched upon this topic because a lot of people it's more like they they don't want to talk about it uh, because it's very uh, it's a very sad topic. It's true, but at the same time, if you don't talk about it, there's not enough awareness on the issue is it a hard topic to talk about yes but someone needs to do it so it, it's really good that you did it uh, i really um applaud you for uh, you. for doing this okay so let's let's talk a bit, a bit more um about this so as you were saying as i was saying like there's not enough people talking about this but you were saying that you did find sources easily right or was it hard to find some specific sources both. It was difficult and easy at the same time. On a historical level, there are references to some test. I mean, before the Syrian case or the Bosnia, there are some reference to some testimony. But, you know, given the social stigma that rapes bring with it, it's very difficult to find um, reports of a trial that have gone through until the end. So the part, the historical part of my thesis, you know, because I didn't want to ignore what happens before uh, this year, and it was really hard to find, really hard. Uh, what was easy uh, was like um, the reports of the United Nations to find. Uh, they are public, you can find on the internet easily. And the, you know, the documents of the trials of the courts of the former Yugoslavia or um, Rwanda. Uh, about Syria was, uh, you know, I just, I only found, only found uh, the reports of the testimonies, but in the end, you know, nothing uh, has been done, so you cannot find <laughs> something that has not been done. So it was hard uh, to connect the points, you know, to, okay, I had all these documents, uh, jurisdictional, uh, testimony, interview, some story, but it was hard to connect all the points. Because yeah. nobody are talking about the Syria and about the women of the Syria. And so it was, this was the hard part because I had to do kind of by my own. So you give an, uh, as you were saying, like you give an overview um, of the, um, of the issue in the first part of your thesis, um, where you go from World War II to Rwanda and then the states of former uh, Yugoslavia. Did you find any difference between 
what happened before and what they're doing now? Mm, yes. Um, well, one thing that pushed me when I decided to write my this thesis was to emphasize, as I said before, that rape is a weapon of war is by no means a new thing, a new thing. And if it's not such a, a new thing, how is it possible that it still happens? Uh, you know, reference can be found in the Bible, in old writings of Greek uh, literature, in the history of the Middle Age, and the story of 19th century, in the story of the last century and the present cent century. And, you know, sometimes rape is a reward, a booty, other times is a, a war strategy, but it doesn't matter what connotation you give it, the rape is always there. Always. I have focused more on the rape in, 20, uh, in 20th century, conflicts both because they are the most well the most recent and because of the systematic strategy behind them you know before it was like most of the time about spoils of war strategy but also spoils of war but behind the, the um, recent conflict mm, there was always been a well-defined political strategy punishment humiliation and ethnic cleansing and genocide and the worst thing is that sometimes it, it was even the so-called good guys who reused it at their own advantage. You know, for example, in the case of the rape of Belgium in the um, uh, World War I, um, the rape of Belgium served for propaganda, you know, for the, the good guys. Uh, but in the end, they never, you know, persecute nobody about it or uh, actually after the conflict, the women that had been raped, they they had a, a social stigma and they were like not believing, um, kind of push away from their cities, their community, most of them committed to suicide. So, you know, yeah, this were, was... Not only the victims of rape, but they, then they also became uh, the target of their own communities. As if, you know, like again, they kind of did it on themselves you know for example in bangladesh when there was the um, in the 70s uh in the 1970 um there was a, the conflict between pakistan and bangladesh for the independence of the bangladesh and most of the the women uh were uh, were raped or uh you know were forced to have a pregnancy and because of their religion uh, they you know they were kind of not pure anymore. Uh, they committed the sin. And even if the um, president of the time uh, said, oh, you know, we should consider women that uh, have been raped as a heroine of war, mm -hmm. they were pushed away from the city. Uh, they were uh, deserted by the family, by the husband. The one that not died or committed suicide moved uh, in another city simply go away from their nation because they nobody wanted them there you also talk about the the state being uh, the promoter of such practices in some cases could you go more into details about it yeah sure um the current reports gathered from the direct testimonies of the survivors and from the indirect ones received from health workers, lawyers and humanitarian organizations show that uh, in Syria, sexual crimes are a weapon of the general policy of repression. In addition, they show the existence of a common pattern 
and a certain degree of organization. Ground operation, checkpoints and detention, detention centers have been and still are the theaters of rape, torture and murder. Um, there is no irrefutable and firm evidence that Damascus official uh, directly ordered the rapes, but several defectors who served in Syrian army say that since the uh, mid-2011, Various intelligence branch directors have received um, direct orders from Damascus, like uh, um, Bashar al-Assad thanks for you for uh, your efforts. He wants you to do everything possible to make the regime powerful and oppose the revolution. You know, saying like that, um, it seems like, uh, okay, but he didn't mention the rape. Sure, but these words, which have also been spoken under city, have legitimized the directors of the security service and the commanders of the army to use any means uh, necessary to stop the revolt. Uh, like I say, in this sense, it seems that the choice to commit systematic rape was made ex exclusively by the military units at the local level. However, we must consider that we are talking about an authoritarian state in which the security apparatus is characterized by a strong um, hierarchy, uh, hierarchy and uh, an effective uh, chain of command over which the president holds control. In Syria, nothing happens, nothing without the president, no. Mm -hmm. So, still, sexual violence has been committed through so many channels nationwide that indicates that it is not isolated and uncontrolled act. The testimonies came from Homs, Hama, Damascus and other more city, and the pattern is always, always the same. Furthermore, uh, the United Nations Commission of um, inquiry has mentioned that rape several times in its report. Report that has been uh, given to Assad and to the state, yet the government has never, never announced an investigation into the allegation, never, despite the fact that they are punishably both international and also national, nationally, because the um, penal codes of Syria punished the rape. And when the conflict was um, still immature, rape was a weapon of repression and punishment. The goal was to suppress the rebellion, uh, attacking the community, um, uh, demands complicity in the opposition through women, and an example had to be given, and what was uh, to stand against the regime. Land operations have provided fertile ground to fulfill this purpose. Um, they, the, the soldiers, uh, enter in the house, rape the women in front of the rest of the family. If you tried to help someone, that the person would be killed. Uh, the women were, um, were made to walk naked in front of the army. They were raped in the streets. And it was like that in every region of the Syria, everyone, always from the, the soldiers of the of the state um when then when the massive arrest campaign was set in motion rape proved to be even a much more effective tool of torture so they keep going because they were obtaining information in prisons rape was uh, practiced during interrogation mostly but as a group or individual uh, it was so brutal that many of the survivors suffered permanent physical damage Sometimes they were raped on the um, 
dirty blankets, uh, dirty from the blood of the husband that were beat to death or something like that, you know? So, yeah. you know, the violence repeated constantly had the sole intent, the sole intent of extrapolating confession or information. But the soldiers did not care about the truth of what came out in these moments. Of course, you know, they simply needed a confession because, you know, the state had to prove themselves that they are like uh, the good guy and they are fighting against the um, Sunni rebellion that wants to, uh, you know, uh, ruin everything that the state does or uh, uh, hit the, um, you know, the, my, the minority. In fact, <clears throat> um, sometimes, uh, another particular aspect of the question of the confessional is that in some cases it was specifically asked to ad officially admit on Syrian television that they had uh, consensual, consensual uh, sex with the numbers of these jihadist forces. You know, in this way, like I was saying, the government intend to discredit the anti-government armed groups by associating them with this extremist group of which both the international and the Syrian communities agree on the cruelties they perpetrate. Nobody will ever exactly. say that jihadists are good guy, you know. Yeah. And, you know, all the women in the reports, in different uh, testimony that I wrote, uh, uh, read, all the women say they were raped under the photo of Bashar al-Assad. And, you know, even if the violence was perpetrated by low-ranking soldiers, it took place in the presence of officers of the Syrian force. And sometimes it was them that ordered uh, and per even perpetrated it. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, the action committed by the opponents should not be underestimated. In fact, not only extremist groups have committed the atrocity, but um, also the moderate ones in some games, uh, have resorted to the use of physical violence. Uh, no, the number of rapes committed by armed group is definitely, definitely far from that uh, the, the one of the government. However, cases have been reported. There is not, but in this case, it's different. There is no evidence of systematic practice or policies by armed group to use sexual and gender-based violence to instill fear or extract information or enforce loyalty. In this case, the use of rape is this um, like um, aim of revenge, sector, mm -hmm. sectarianism, because uh, the state is uh, mostly Alawita and the rebels are mostly Sunni. So this is why they, there was the use of the rape in the opponents and exploitation. Other reports of violence came from the cases of kidnapping to use women as burning, uh, a burning uh, cheap money. But um, there is not a systematic strategy in this case. Um, one of the interesting findings of your research is that rape only recently has become recognized by international tribunals uh, as a serious offense. Yeah, before the even, uh, events of the nine, um, 1990s, a mention of sexual violence is found in the Liber Court at the end of the 19th century, which classified rape as a disciplinary crime of the troops punishable by the death penalty. So it was only concerned about the, the crime that the troops committed. While in the Hague Convention, 
uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, 20th century. Um, that uh, the Hague Convention protected women by demanding the protection of their honor. They spoke about honor in the Hague Convention. Um, after World War II, uh, the Allies set up a commission to investigate the rape of Belgian French women, but the intent was not seriously pursued and there was no reference to rape in the Nuremberg chart. Um, on the other side, the Far Eastern Tribunal, uh, even if they don't do explicit mention of rape, um, there is no rape, explicit mention of the rape in the statute, uh, statute, but uh, it was prosecuted uh, sexual crimes. Uh, first explicit mention of rape as a specific crime in this case, of course, with the Control Council law, which included a definition of crimes against humanity, but it's um, with the Geneva Conve uh, Convention in uh, 1949, um, that the first modern international instrument to establish rape, uh, rape protection for women. But, um, however, it was the jurisprudence of the International Criminal Courts uh, for the crimes of the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda that marked a significant turning point uh, in the definition of rape as international crime, as it was persecuted in, uh, by both courts as genocide, war crime and crime against humanity and recognized as form of torture. There is a, um, a reason why I tend to point out a lot about the work of the courts for uh, the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. This is because uh, even if the um, Geneva Convention and its additional protocols are referred to as a normative body of war crimes, given their nature, this apply only to states that have ratified them. Yes. So, but despite this, there is a group of rules defined as a serious violation that go beyond these limits. Uh, since this rule being of binding nature, do not require ratification and have a universal jurisdiction. Of course, there is no rape in the list of serious violations, <laughs> but if you look carefully, the violations presented are often carried out through sexual violence. So, following the events of the early 90s, uh, both the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Commission of Experts from the former Yugoslavia immediately understood uh, that sexual violence as part of the serious violation. On the other hand, in the last century, rape proved to be a valid instrument of torture. Ergo, even if um, it does not specifically fall under serious violation, it does so through torture and inhuman treatments. Therefore, the most important turning point for the recognition of rape as use cogent prohibition is provided by the jurisprudence of this court, actually. So, um, the prohibition of torture is generally recognized as use cogent, so sexual violence, it should be recognized as an or a use cogent. Yeah. It is important that is, this recognition occurs officially as soon as possible because so that state will be forced to recognize and act according to their obligation to persecute those uh, responsibly and punish the violation. Yeah, in your last chapter, you have a section that is sort of, well, the whole chapter is um, basically sort of uh, j'accuse, where you point your finger towards the different international organizations pointing out all their failures and missed opportunities. Yeah, but uh, you know why? Because um, the policy of the United Nations and the European Union and the entire international community 
make accept any sponsor, uh, Russian and Iran, feel untouchable and leads to an increasingly progressive mistrust, uh, mistrust of the institution. And the worst thing that this inertia has mainly political and economic basis that prevents the application of law. And it's so absurd. Now, the US and European attempts to exert pressure on Damascus through a complex system of sanctions and to attack symbolic and in insignificant military bases, of course, they not lead to any concrete solution. And in addition, the Syrian humanitarian crisis has highlighted, above all, the problems that is inside the United Nations and the Security Council, where the power of veto has proved to be its greatest limitation. Yeah. And this is why a power that it's in the end of Russia, Syria's greatest, uh, greatest ally, meant that the International Criminal Court could not prosecute Assad and his entourage. That's also making the work of the international, impartial, and independent mechanism for Syria inconclusive. Um, I will explain uh, this point better. The statute of the International Criminal Court is, itself limits its jurisdiction to uh, citizens of the states that have been um, ratified the statute, or if the state in whose territory they were committed. So, um, most of the states have um, ratified its statute, but many still don't not recognize its legitimacy, and of course, Syria. And moreover, an, you know, an institution has power as many states are part of it. So um, it should be noted that a, a growing number of states accept its le legitimacy, even if they, uh, they have not ratified the, the, its status. Uh, like the three permanent members, Russia, the United States, and China. This is not a surprise. I mean, there are the 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 states that probably would never, never, ever uh, limited their power. Yeah. So, uh, like I was saying, Syria is not a state party to um, of the International uh, Criminal Court. But the court could judge on crimes committed thanks to an, an authorization from the Security Council. So, um, what happens? In 2014, Russia, supported by China, put the veto on a resolution calling for the International Criminal Court to deal with the crisis in Syria. Uh, 13 of the 15 Security Council members voted for the resolution, but as you know, if a permanent member put the veto, the resolution cannot continue, cannot survive. Uh, it was presented by 65 countries that had appealed to all 193 member states of the United Nations to co-sponsor the resolution under which the International Criminal Court would be authorized to investigate the allegation of the crimes by the Syrian government, and but also from the other um, opponents and armed group. Of course, despite these efforts, Russia was uh, not, uh, it was never convinced to approve the resolution. And the resolution was uh, tabled again in 2018. So four years later, you know, we did the hope that Russia would change um, its mind, but <laughs> it didn't happen. Russia did not hesitate to exercise its veto uh, once again. The only concrete solution comes from several human rights lawyers who have decided to go beyond the mobility of large organizations 
and during, you know, this is really sad because I mean, it's really uh, beautiful and full of hope that there are still outside human rights lawyers that want to do something and change the things. But we should be, you know, protected by this kind of organization. We should count on them. But no, <laughs> unfortunately, no. <laughs> so during a nice episode that I want to report is that during 2019, these human rights lawyers, they filled a petition on behalf of refugees in Jordan, Syrian refugees in Jordan, with the International Criminal Court against President Bashar al-Assad. Like I said, the, um, Syria is not, did not ratify the International Criminal Court. So these human rights lawyers filed the motion on the basis of a precedent uh, where the same court ruled that he will open an investigation into the alleged crimes against the, the um, Rohingya uh, committed by Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar is not part of the International Criminal Court, uh, of course, but uh, the Rohingya right now are on the, in, in Bangladesh. Uh, they are in Bangladesh, so they are, um, these lawyers are feeling the motion on this basis. Uh, in the meantime, however, the individual countries of the European Union have not been stopped, and last year, yes, it was last year, began one of the most important trials Two Syrian intelligence officers have entered in the courtroom and are facing accusations involving torture, sexual assault, and rape. So for now, the international community is unable to speak with one voice and condemn what is happening in Syria. But this process and the, you know, mark something that it's huge because we are going we're going to do step forward in this case. Yeah, hopefully uh, someone is going to be held um, accountable, um, even if it's going to be hard, but at least I think it's going to be good anyways, um, as long as, yeah, like the, the courts can start doing something. And, you know, these officers, they enter, I I don't remember what it is, if it was Germany and on Sweden, they enter it as a Syrian refugee that, uh, you know, faces torture and, um, you know, uh, in inhuman uh, treatment, but actually they were the officer that perpetrated that. And they were recognized by the other survivors. And oh, wow. it was like that. Yeah, it was impressive. Yeah. Um, okay, the uh, the interview is over. Um, as to everything I wanted to ask you, so uh, thank you very much for uh, for being our guest. It was sorry, good. I know I talk too much. <laughs> no, no, don't worry, don't worry. I mean, uh, we we love when people uh, talk a lot in this podcast, and uh, I don't know, maybe next time we we can ask you something more specific about humanitarian law because it, it's it's very lovely talking to you. Do you have anything you want to promote? Um, well, uh, I would like that people maybe, you know, start to uh, take care more about what happens outside. Um, you know, with the migration crisis in Europe, pe most of the people here just think, oh, no, uh, uh, we have not enough work, uh, food, place to live for everyone, so we should not open our border. But I would like to actually promote the open border uh, because what happens there it's also kind of our fault because we are always turn the face on the other side and one thing that I also I would like to promote is that we have to start uh, 
to have another consideration about the society and the role of women in the society, because we have still a lot of uh, roads to do in this case. We totally support that. Again, thank you very much for being our guest and hope to talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks to have me. Bye. We really hope you enjoyed our episode. And if you enjoy what we do, you can follow us on Spotify, on Instagram, on Facebook, and all the main social media platforms. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, please give us a good rating because that will really help us. Thank you.